Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 8. Gospel of John chapter 8. As we begin our study this morning, I want to explain that we face a difficulty with our text. This is an unusual thing for us to come to in the Bible, very few times that we come to such a thing. If you'll look in your Bible, probably whatever Bible you have, you will find a statement right before the last verse of chapter 7, or perhaps as a footnote, maybe you won't have this, but most Bibles will have it, that says something like this. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7, 53, to 8, 11. Have something like that in your Bible? That's a true statement. One which you don't need to be afraid of. The best Bible scholars, not some liberals who don't care about the Bible, but the very best Bible students, teachers, professors, ones who give their whole lives to defending the Scripture, Every single word of it. Those scholars generally agree that this section was not part of John's gospel as he originally wrote it. That somebody copying it by hand somewhere along the way inserted this story at this point in John's gospel. I think that's what happened. Still, we're going to study it. Let me tell you why. Four reasons, real quickly. Though it's probably not part of what John originally wrote, it is undoubtedly a true event. There's very good historical evidence for this event early on in the church. Papias, who lived shortly after 100 A.D., only a decade or two after John, quotes this story. The third century, it was included in a book called the Apostolic Con uh, Constitutions. It was as a warning to bishops who were too strict. It was known very early in the life of the church. Second reason is that it fits John's gospel. Maybe that's why it was put here. Uh, John's gospel in this section, he tends to have a story or a miracle event followed by a discourse. In chapter 5, there was a healing of the man by the pool, and then there was a discourse about the Sabbath and such things. Chapter 6, there was the feeding of the 5,000 and then a discourse about the bread of life. In chapter 7, there was the incident of Jesus and his brothers and then the discourse about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now there's this incident this, uh, with this woman taken in adultery and then there's the discourse about righteousness and freedom in chapter 8. Thirdly, there's a reason why this text might have been omitted if it were part of the original text. As Christianity advanced in a pagan world where sexual immorality of every conceivable kind was everywhere, it would be easy to understand how some zealous copyist might have thought this thing is going to seem to be a little soft on sin. This might seem to say that sexual immorality doesn't matter. Maybe we ought to just leave this part out. We know, for example, that Ambrose and Augustine, two of the early church fathers, rejected this passage on that ground. They thought it was too easy on sinners. If 
Finally, wherever this account came from, some included in Luke's gospel, by the way, but wherever it came from, it's true to Christ's nature. It fits what we know about Jesus and his holiness and his wisdom and his love and compassion. It's consistent with God's word. So even though very strong likelihood that this was not part of the original text of John's gospel, we're going to study it and try to learn from it for God has seen fit to preserve this for us for hundreds and hundreds of years with just enough credibility that we don't dare just ignore it. Let's read it. John chapter 753 down to 811. Then he turned to his own house, his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. like for us to learn two things from this passage. The first is this. Jesus hates injustice. Jesus hates injustice. You know, there are few things in life as bitter as injustice. How often do we hear the agonizing cry, it's just not fair. And yet we tend, eventually tend to accept it. Who said life is fair, we respond. That's just the way things are, we say, with some resignation, as if God himself just had to accept that things aren't right. This morning as we study this incident, we are reminded that though the whole world may have come to accept injustice, Jesus still hates it. Maybe the injustice here isn't obvious to you. Perhaps you only see a woman who's caught in sin and deserves to be punished. What's unjust about that, you might say? Well, let me explain where we see injustice here. First of all, it's, there's injustice because justice was never the goal of this whole event. That's not what this was about from the beginning. The scribes and Pharisees were using this woman to maneuver Jesus into a lose-lose situation. 
trying to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. They'd done this before, but this attempt was way more sophisticated than any previous one. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Old Testament commanded that one caught in the act of adultery should be stoned to death. They simply asked Jesus for his opinion, right? Wrong. Much more to it than that. Verse 6 says they were, try they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This was a trap. Jesus was on trial here. It was a clever trap. Let me explain. Jesus was known for preaching good news, for his compassion toward broken, hurting people. But in this case, if he showed compassion on this woman, saying, no, don't execute her, don't stone her, he would be guilty of disregarding God's law. Now, they had already accused him of that. But this would be proof positive. See, the law said stoner, and he said don't. Aha, we got him. On the other hand, if Jesus says, the law says stoner, stoner. Well, he'll never again be called a friend of sinners. The word on the street will be, sure, he says, come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. But boy, when you get there, he'll turn you in, and they'll punish you just like everybody else. got him. To complicate things a little further, the Roman law did not allow the Jews to execute people, to deal with capital punishment. So if Jesus says, yes, God's law says stoner, we've got to stoner, they go right to the Romans and they say, we have a man over here who is, um, who is suggesting a rebellion and insurrection against the Roman rule. You need to take care of him, they would say to Pilate or Herod. They had him, didn't they? One of three things has got to be lost. The life of the woman, the credibility of Jesus' ministry, or God's law, which required justice. Lose-lose situation. No matter what Jesus does, something that he cares about, the woman, his ministry, God's law, something has got to be sacrificed. You see, this wasn't about this woman at all. This woman was a thing. She was a pawn being used to get at Jesus. No one cared a thing about her. And Jesus hates that kind of thinking about people. He hates that kind of injustice that just uses people for your political means, for your political ends. Jesus hates that injustice. Oh, but there's much more injustice against this woman than even that. It's true that the Old Testament law required stoning, specifically for a young woman who was engaged to be married, who committed fornication in violation of her promise, her engagement. We often speak of the legalism of the Jews and all of the things wrong with all of their attention to the law, but in another sense, the Jewish law was some, in some ways uh, exemplary. Under the Jewish law of that day, it was very difficult to just take people out and execute them. 
The death penalty was reserved for cases in which there was absolutely no doubt about the guilt. In fact, there's a section in the Jewish Mishnah which explains the law that declares, I quote here, the Sanhedrin, which so often as once in seven years condemns a man to death, is a slaughterhouse. Once in seven years. They didn't expect to execute very many people. They made it hard to execute people. And so in the case of adultery, seeing a couple come out of a room in the morning where you saw them go in the night before, that was not sufficient evidence of adultery. They had to be caught in the act. The witnesses had to see them having sex for this to stick. Not only that, one witness wasn't good enough. Two or three people had to see the couple actually in the act in order to condemn. That kind of evidence is not easy to get in case you never thought about that. And that legal difficulty in obtaining the proper kind of evidence almost guarantees that this woman was set up. Doesn't it? We call it entrapment. It's still not legal. We consider it injustice. Can you imagine the picture? Biblical scholars, pastors, seminary professors scurrying around late at night trying to set a trap, luring a young engaged woman into sin, spending the night peeking out of a closet to try to catch her in the act, and then delighting in her sin because now they had the evidence to go and trap Jesus. Can you imagine? Dr. James Boyce comments, learn from this story the horror of sin. Let me say it clearly, he says. If you ever find yourself peeping through someone else's keyhole, either figuratively or literally, in order to accuse him or her, rather than spending the night praying as Jesus did, you can be certain that you are being acted upon by the devil not the spirit of the Lord Jesus, who for his part always acted in love toward the sinner. Oh, God hates that kind of injustice that sets up a woman, delights in her sin because it fits your plan. Oh, but there's even more injustice. If they had indeed caught her in the act, as they said in verse 4, and as the law required, where is the man? You know, there's no such thing as one person committing adultery. Takes two. If they saw her, they saw him. Where is he? Why isn't he standing here being publicly humiliated like she is? Was he part of the scheme? 
Was he in on the conspiracy, offered immunity from the beginning for his help? Was he one of them? At the very least, they let him go. They caught her in the act and not him. They let him go. The old double standard. Still around, isn't it? Young girl gets pregnant, ruins her life, and the guy kind of moves on to somebody else. And Jesus hates it. Hates the injustice. Hated it then, hates it now. You see, this whole event was never about justice for this guilty woman. There was no desire to seek a trial. If they wanted a trial, they could have quietly taken her into the chambers and had their trial. They wanted to publicly humiliate her. They wanted to use her as a pawn. They wanted to lynch her. This is the kind of injustice that Jesus hates throughout the gospel. Using people as pawns for your political goals. Luring people into sin. Delighting in their sin. Looking the other way when your friends sin. Throwing the book at your enemies. And the chauvinistic double standard which is still around. And Jesus hates it. Injustice. Oh, but those perpetrators of injustice misjudged the one they had challenged. For as we learned in Psalm 18:26, to the crooked you show yourself shrewd, O Lord. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus ignored the woman's sin for the moment. He ignored the question they asked him for a moment. Instead, he wanted to deal with them. But he didn't immediately even speak to them. He stooped down and began to write in the dirt. doesn't say what he wrote. A lot of speculation. We might speculate about that. He began to write in the dirt. And they kept pressing more and more until finally he spoke up. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he went back to writing in the dirt. Listing something, the word seems to say. Writing down as you write a list. Let me explain what's going on here. The Old Testament law required that one, when, when one was guilty of an offense that demanded stoning, that the witnesses who came and bore witness about the guilt were obligated to be the first ones to throw stones. You couldn't just bring a false witness against someone and then wash your hands and sneak out the back door and let them take whatever they had coming. If you brought a witness against someone, you had to become also the lead executioner. Makes you think twice about your witness, doesn't it? Not only that, but for one to be a legal witness, you could not have had anything to do with the crime. You must not have participated in any way the kind of plea bargaining arrangement which we're so accustomed to where 
someone gets off with a lighter sentence in exchange for a deal where they testify against their friends, that would never have happened, wouldn't have been allowed. If you were involved, you're not a witness. You're one of the guilty. Now remember that this was most almost certainly a setup, a plot, a conspiracy, entrapment. This woman had been set up by the very people who now accused her. So do you see the genius of Jesus' answer here? He doesn't say, ignore the law, let her off. Neither does he say, yes, she deserves to die. God hates that sin. Instead, he throws the ball back in their court. Sure. Go ahead and stone her, if you wish, as long as you remember the requirements for justice. And he went back to writing in the dirt. Perhaps the name of the man who slept with her. Perhaps the names of those involved in the plot. Perhaps some details of their conspiracy that they thought only they knew. Perhaps the Old Testament law that spoke of the importance of witnesses bringing a true witness and not perjuring themselves. We don't know what he wrote, but we know they were cut to the heart, struck in their conscience, with the injustice that they were involved in. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. G. Campbell Morgan says pointedly, that sentence put me out of the stone-throwing business for the rest of my life. And so from the oldest and wisest down to the youngest, they began to walk away until they were all gone. And the, the woman stood there, no longer accused, no witnesses, insufficient evidence. You see what Jesus did here? He refused to participate he refused to be caught on the evil horns of a dilemma. He refused to condone this sham of justice because he hates the injustice that was right under the surface. A lot of implications of this for us, I think. Jesus still says, be careful when you judge. By whatever standard you judge others, you'll be judged yourself. We have a certain hierarchy of sins, and we consider adultery right up there toward the top. But Jesus seems to be more concerned with their judgmental self-righteousness than with the woman's adultery, doesn't he? I suspect he still is. Then there's a question that gets raised about capital punishment here. Did Jesus outlaw the death penalty? I mean, the Old Testament law required the death penalty, but Jesus didn't call for it. Is that a thing of the past? I don't think so. He never said the law was wrong. 
He never told them not to carry out the requirements of the law. I think the Bible still teaches capital punishment. But in a day when conservatives seem to be rather bloodthirsty for execution, not wanting to bother with all those little nuances of mitigating circumstances and legal technicalities, I have to say to you, you don't find any friend in Jesus on that score. Jesus is concerned for justice. No ulterior motives, no political footballs, no campaign gimmicks, no shortcuts, no shooting from the hip, real justice. He hates injustice. This passage applies to us most pointedly on a personal level. I must tell you that among certain parts of the church, including our part, our circles, I often observe an attitude which loves the law and loves to take a bold stand against sin, but isn't nearly so much in love with justice. Justice for everyone. Justice for people different than me. Justice for poor people. Justice at every point along the way. Justice down to the roots of our society. Justice down to the little nuances of our thinking. Justice in the very depths of my soul. But Jesus loves justice and hates injustice. And we must too. I'll give you a concrete example before we move on to the rest of the text. It's easy to be outspoken against abortion when January rolls around every year and the Roe versus Wade decision, the anniversary of that. But I ask you, you're against abortion, I am. Does your heart break for the rest of the injustice that all preceded that? What about the injustice of children having to grow up, grow up in a society where anything goes, where promiscuity is assumed where they're having to live out the sins of their parents who wanted to throw off all the rules back in the 60s. Now the child's got to grow up. And what about that injustice? What about a child who grows up? Mom and dad so busy pursuing their own things that there's no training, there's no discipline. He's just on his own. What about that injustice? What about the little girl that's sexually abused by some dear family member? About one out of four girls now, often a good church-going family member. What about that injustice? What about a little girl so ignored by her daddy who's too busy making a buck or too macho to tell her he loves her? That she seeks love wherever she can find it. The first guy that comes along that makes her feel like she's worth something. What about that injustice? What about a kid who has to grow up with his 
parents going in two opposite directions because they were too busy doing their own thinking thing and seeking their own fulfillment that they weren't willing to make the marriage work. What about that injustice on that? And then what about the little girl who grows up in all of that only to learn that when she gets pregnant one day, her church is only interested in punishing her? I'm afraid that's the modern version of this tale. If your heart doesn't cry at all of those injustices, don't you be throwing any stones at abortion clinics. You see, Jesus hates injustice. All of it but especially when it's heaped on little people by the people that are supposed to protect them as it was here. Loving justice is not the same as being tough on law and order. It's not the same as upholding the law. God's love of justice His love of mercy, which brings us to the rest of the story here. There's a second truth we need to learn. Jesus restores the fallen. Oh, it's delightful to see Jesus cut through all the hypocrisy of these leaders. All the heartless injustices covered with the facade of piety. It's, it's delightful to see Jesus cut through all of that and get right down to the heart of the matter. It's encouraging to see him take away those, turn away those self-righteous vultures who preyed on this young woman in her weakness. But when they all left, we still have Jesus having to deal with the young woman. G. Campbell Morgan describes the scene. Jesus was left alone with the woman before him. Now what do we see? Incarnate purity? Standing, confronting the very saddest thing in all human life, convicted impurity. There's no mistake. According to his own declared principle, he was the only one who had the right to cast a stone. If we did not know the story so well, if we were hearing it for the first time, we would almost stop with bated breath, waiting to see what happened. Oh, but we do know the story well, and we know that what happened is Jesus restored the fallen. But how? How is it possible that Jesus restored this woman? That's the great dilemma that the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter 3. How can God be just and at the same time the justifier of sinners? God may love sinners with all his heart, but he's still a holy God 
who doesn't wink at sin, who will not acquit the guilty. If God were to overlook this woman's sin, he would no longer be fit to be God. He would have compromised his holiness. I mean, if we have a judge in our town who, when one of his friends or his son or his nephew comes to commit and has committed some crime, he just says, well, I like you, so forget about it. We don't consider that a good judge. We want to impeach him. That's a bad judge. God's not a bad judge. He's a righteous judge. But on the other hand, if God acts as a faithful, righteous judge, no matter how much he loves this woman, he must declare her guilty, condemned to die like the law says. James Boyce points out, with devilish insight, these men hit upon the problem, the problem of all problems. In respect to the relationship between men and God. The problem is, how can God show love to the sinner without being unjust? From a human point of view, the problem is unsolvable. In this case, the rulers were right. Even if Jesus wants to show love, the answer to this great dilemma is what we call the gospel. This is the mystery of the ages. This is God's wise and wonderful plan which the prophets didn't understand, though they prophesied about it, which we read that the angels have longed to see the beauty of it, waited for it to be unfolded, how God could solve this great dilemma. This is the genius of the Savior's work. God, the holy judge, became man in the person of Jesus. He lived perfectly according to the law, lived in perfect right relationship with his Father, never breaking the law. So that the father said, this is my son, I'm pleased with him. And then he took that perfect life, the Lord Jesus did, and he willingly was led to the cross where he died the death of the guilty, though he was not guilty. He died and endured the punishment that sinners deserve. There on the cross, God poured out his judgment against my sin which Jesus bore in my place. I heard someone say once Jesus didn't die for me, Jesus died as me. But God raised him from the dead, proving that the payment was complete. The sin was atoned for. It was sufficient. And now, finally, God, who has judged sin perfectly on the cross, is free to show mercy and love perfectly to those who trust in Jesus. And that forgiveness does not call into question his justice because he punished sin. That's the great truth we affirm together this morning. It's on that basis that Jesus can say to this woman, neither 
do I condemn thee? Because Jesus knew why he had come, what he was about to do, Jesus borrowed on the payment he was about to make for her and granted her forgiveness. As Frederick Bushner wrote, he would not condemn her because he would be condemned for her. He did what only God had the authority to do, forgive sins, but he did it only within, because of the plan that he had come to accomplish, that is, that he paid for sin so that he could forgive sins for those he loved. Make no mistake, this was not cheap forgiveness which Jesus gave this woman. He knew that he would have to go to the cross and pay the penalty for her sin, endure not just angry stones from a crowd because of her adultery, but to endure the wrath of God against her adultery. And one day he did just, like, he did just that, stretched out and nailed down onto a cross. He hung there and suffered the agony of death, but also the wrath of God until he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God had turned his back on his son because he bore the adultery of this woman that God hated. And Jesus had let the woman off. And he bore my sin and your sin. And he let us off. But he endured the agony until finally he could say, it's finished. It's over. It's paid in full. no cheap pat on the back that Jesus gives this woman when he says, neither do I condemn thee. Jesus restores the fallen. Pastor Bruce Milne comments, it is surely a remarkable fact that he who is the embodiment of divine holiness, the I am who met his people on Mount Sinai with fire and thunder, should say to a self-confessed sinner with the guilt of the broken commandment heavy on her conscience, neither do I condemn thee. Here is the miracle of the grace of God. There is no greater wonder than this. The turning of the water into wine, the healing of a dying lad by a word, the feeding of 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, the walking on the storm-tossed sea, none of those or all of those together compares to this. Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. This morning I want to say to you, adulterers who sit here, for there are some, aren't there? Jesus still restores the fall. And to you who are guilty of other sins, perhaps so serious that they too would require the death penalty from God, Jesus still restores the fallen. This is the promise of his word. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and will not be condemned past and death to life. We read in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
This is the best news in the whole world. Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Jesus restores the fallen. In fact, this truth is so certain. It is so absolutely certain that those who trust in Jesus are restored that the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. Listen. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Strike terror to your soul? Will not happen. Those will not inherit the kingdom. He goes on. And that's what some of you were. You were, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Used to be those things, not anymore, because Jesus restores fallen sinners. morning I call you to Jesus. Turn your faith toward him. Rest in him. And how should one live who's received such total forgiveness? Well, Jesus answers plainly in verse 11, go and sin no more. Go and stop sinning. This morning I tell you, no matter what you've done, there's mercy in Jesus. But there is no mercy to enable you to continue in sin with a clear conscience. There's mercy to deliver you from sin. It's guilt and it's power. Jesus doesn't just forgive. He restores sinners and makes them disciples. Neither do I condemn you. Go and stop sinning. Dr. Boyce ends his comments on this section that I read with an interesting question which I pose to you. Who are you like in this story? If you were to identify with somebody in this story, who is, who is you? Who are you? Are you like the crowd that stood there watching? Good entertainment. Wow. Did you see Jesus outmaneuver them? Talked about it all the way home. That was pretty clever, I think. Are you like the crowd? Interesting to listen to, go home unaffected. Or are you like the leaders? They were sinners too. They went away from Jesus ashamed silenced, humbled, but without an answer for the injustice that ruled in their hearts. The injustice which God, which God hates. Are you like those rulers? Outward facade of piety, 
a heart full of injustice. Best person in the story to be is the woman, isn't it? She was sinful. She was guilty. So are we. But as she stood there without any excuse, publicly humiliated, wasn't the worst thing that could happen to her. It was the very best. Stripped of everything, of all of her dignity, all of her self-respect, all of the respect of all kinds of people, she found Jesus who loves mercy, who forgave and restored her. And she departed a changed person. Forgiven. Following Jesus. Who are you? The crowd? The leaders? The woman? Amen. Dear Father, I pray that as we think about this, event, this story, that you would use it as a powerful truth to us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would use it to dismantle our self-righteousness and give us a heart for the broken, the hurting. I pray that you would use it, Lord, to nourish our souls, our hearts that sometimes accuse us, to convince us that those who trust in Jesus are not condemned. Oh Lord, we thank you for this text, for preserving it for us. We pray that you would use it for your good purposes in our hearts and lives now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.